Good morning, Redemption. My name is Tim, and I'm a member here. Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba 
because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This is God's word for us today. Morning, everybody. It's good to be together. Would you join me as I pray for us as we look to God's word? Father, this book is so cool. <laughs> and this story in particular uh, is so rich and so beautiful. We, we thank you that you're a God who speaks, who's given us this word. And we pray that you would use your word this morning to give us life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have ever needed a ride to the airport very, very early in the morning, then you know that is not something you ask just anyone to help you with. Am I right? Uh, flying is already stressful enough. There are so many things to think about. Uh, so many little details that could easily go wrong and throw a wrench in your entire plan. And so at 4 a.m., when you look outside your front window at that driveway, ready to begin this long and complicated journey, the last thing you want to be thinking is, are they awake? Did they wake up? Are they going to be here when they said, we, we've all had that pit in our stomach when the clock hits 4.01, right? And we haven't gotten a text and the car is not in the driveway yet. And by the way, as, as inconvenient as it is to do this for someone to help them in this way, I want to say you should always be honored when they ask you to because it means that they trust you. It means that they think you'll actually show up. You can learn a lot about your impression of someone based on this one simple factor. When they tell you they will do something for you, do you think they actually will? And that has been one of the looming questions in our series, especially these last few weeks. Will God come through on this promise, which now happened way back in chapter 12, will he give Abraham and Sarah a son? It has now been 25 years in the making. And in today's passage, we finally get an answer to that. Uh, you'll notice there is still a lot of promise left to be fulfilled. Uh, and they will still sojourn in this land for many, many years, we read at the end. But in this passage, Isaac is born. But as Carl pointed out in our call to worship... The details of this story also seem strangely familiar because back in chapter 16, Sarah became impatient with God and she decided that Abraham should have a child with her servant, Hagar. And when Hagar did become pregnant with her son, Ishmael, it created all kinds of very serious tension in the family, especially with Sarah, ironically, even though it was her idea. And so Hagar was cast out into the wilderness away from Sarah. And when she ran from Sarah, as she ran in the wilderness, God met her there. And he even made her a promise, specifically that this son, Ishmael, would be fruitful and that he would multiply, that he would live on and grow into a great nation. It's very similar, actually, to God's promise to Abraham. But since then, we've learned 
that it was not God's will to carry on his promise and his plans through Ishmael. He will grow into a great nation, but it is not through that nation that God plans to bless all other nations. No, God wants to carry on Abraham's family line through Sarah, through his old, barren wife, which is exactly what we see here in verses 4 to 7. Sarah gives birth to Isaac after 25 long years of waiting. But as huge as that news would have been, you have to admit in this story, it seems almost like a footnote. It's very anticlimactic. It just says it happened. There's not much detail. They're happy about it. They, they laugh. And then the story just sort of moves on. Instead, most of this passage actually today focuses on Hagar and Ishmael. Because it turns out that this news of Isaac's birth actually introduces us to a new crisis in the family. Now, all of a sudden, there are two sons of Abraham, and all of a sudden, there are two promises from God, and we're going to see that causes one huge problem. Before long, Hagar and Ishmael find themselves right back where they were in chapter 16. They find themselves cast out again in the wilderness again, far from God and his covenant people again, and afraid for their lives again. And all of a sudden, at least for them, it was not quite clear if God could be taken at his word. How would he rescue them now? And what right would they have to even know and worship him now that they were not a part of Abraham's family? Did he even care if they lived now that Isaac had been born and they had been cast out of the family? Okay, so this is what we're going to see today. So Bible's open. Let's walk through this story together, and let's keep an eye out in particular for the claim of this text. What is it that God wants to do this morning to shape us by the power of this story? Well, right away, we get a pretty big hint at the claim of this text in the way that Isaac's birth is described. Let's see if you can spot it. I'm going to make it hard to miss. Verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Do you see the pattern? Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. That is Sarah, the one that God said would give him a son, not, not Hagar. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. So the focus here is clearly on God's word. This was all unfolding in exactly the way God said that it would from the very beginning. The woman he chose gave birth to the son that he promised at the exact moment he predicted, and he's even circumcised on the eighth day just as God commands. Now, in light of everything we've been reading especially the last few weeks, this basically amounts to a big, fat, told you so, told you. The author wants us to see that Abraham and Sarah did not need to worry and plot and scheme like they had been doing these last few chapters to make this promise try and happen in and of themselves because ever since God said that it would happen, it was always a sure thing that it would. We also see the same theme on display in all the laughter 
that is in this story. Did you catch that? Look at verse 6. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? And yet I have borne him a son in his old age. It's supposed to be a rhetorical question, right? Who in the world would have said this? But remember, who did say this would happen? <laughs> Over and multiple times. The answer is God did. God said it would happen. And remember how both Abraham and Sarah responded when God told them this would happen. Both of them laughed. So there's some irony here, right? They both laughed. Abraham laughed in chapter 17. Sarah laughed in chapter 18. In fact, the Hebrew name of Isaac literally just means they laughed. <laughs> they didn't ever want us to forget. God did not ever want us to forget that Abraham and Sarah never thought that this would happen. That's the kid's name. This boy has basically become a monument, yes, to the faithfulness of God, but also to the parents' lack of faith. They never thought this would happen, but here they are, after all those years, doubting God's faithfulness, and they are just giggling to themselves with joy and excitement. They can't believe that Sarah actually bore a son, right? Who would have said? And that's all we read about the birth of Isaac. It happened, just as God said, and they laughed about it. And then we read in verse 8, and the child grew and was weaned. Wow, that, I mean, that was fast, right? And they didn't even stop to take any infant pictures. He, just, just, he grew up right away, boom. And then notice, Sarah sees a certain someone laughing later in life. It's Ishmael, Abraham's first son by Hagar, and as soon as she sees Ishmael laughing, it's as if she realizes, oh boy, uh, we have a huge problem here. Now, it could be that Ishmael was laughing in a different way. It's possible that he was sort of mocking Isaac even. That's possible. Or it could be that just seeing Ishmael laugh as a happy member of this family, had a way of basically waking Sarah up to the very serious threat that he now is, which she mentions in verse 10. She says to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son for, here's the reason why, the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Now at first, it, to me at least, it seemed like she was maybe being a bit petty here, sort of self-serving like she was back in chapter 16. But if we just consider what God's promise really is, I think this all starts to make a lot more sense. Remember, God has promised to raise up Abraham's descendants into a great nation and to give them the promised land. He says, look as far as you can, this whole region. And he specifically says he wants to do that through Sarah, Abraham's barren wife. And so if Hagar and Ishmael continued as happy members of this family, then Ishmael and his offspring would eventually inherit everything right along with Isaac. Including someday the entire promised land. In fact, if anything, since uh, Ishmael is the firstborn son, it may be that Isaac's entire inheritance would be dependent on him. He wouldn't get a thing if Ishmael didn't want him to. So now there will be a dispute over this inheritance. So long as Ishmael is a member of this family, he's actually a threat to God's purpose and God's promise. 
Abraham will have to cast them both out in order for God's promise to continue the way that he said. And we see this is the case when at first Sarah's suggestion was, quote, very displeasing to Abraham. But then God himself comes to Abraham and he says, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever she says to you, he says, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he's your offspring. In other words, God's saying, listen, I know this is incredibly hard. I know this is your son, but you have to send him off for the sake of my promise. Now, don't worry, I will take care of them. You have to let them go. God, he says very importantly that he will make Ishmael into a great nation. In other words, they'll be fine. They will live on and they will prosper. So Abraham sends them off the best way he can with some food and a skin of water and they depart. They go wandering in the wilderness again. And pretty quickly we read uh, that the water Abraham gives to them, notice, it runs out almost right away. In no time at all, Hagar and Ishmael are famished in the wilderness without any water, to the extent even that Hagar seems to think that her son Ishmael is about to die. And right away, it seems like what God said back in chapter 16 is proving to be untrue. Which brings us to the climax of this story. When Hagar lays Ishmael down underneath a bush, fully expecting him to die, and she walks away, the distance of a bow shot, it says, so that she doesn't have to watch as her son wastes away and dies. We read, she lifted up her voice and wept. And then look with me at verse 17. God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Again, just like I promised to do back in chapter 16, the last time you were cast out in the wilderness because of Sarah, when I met you by another spring and made this very promise to you, God shows up again to show Hagar that what he said back in chapter 16 will happen, and it will happen just as he said. Church, this God, who we just learned, by the way, that we need to fear because our life belongs to him. That was the point last week. This God is now comforting Hagar. He he meets her in the wilderness. He says, fear not. And he is saving the life of her son. This shows us God's heart, not only for Israel, but for all nations, for all the people he's created. He is faithful to his word, Not only for Abraham and Sarah's descendants, but also for Hagar and Ishmael. He preserves their life. He blesses them. He multiplies their descendants too, just as he said that he would. It gets even better. This is so cool, this last little part. If you look at verse 19, it says, Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Now remember, they were just about to die. And so without question, the the obvious 
curiosity we're meant to have is where in the world did this well come from? The story's almost written in such a way where it's kind of like, ah, like just this well that pops up out of nowhere, and we're, we're really curious about that. And then we get this really strange cut to a whole new scene, and it's a conversation between Abraham and Abimelech. It's not even about Hagar and Ishmael at all. This is the king who Abraham just lied to, by the way, in last week's passage. This is the king who actually fears the Lord. Now remember, at the end of last week's passage, to make that whole conflict right, Abimelech gave Abraham sheep, oxen, servants, a thousand coins, and he gave him permission to dwell anywhere he wanted in this land. At first, I love this, Abimelech basically tells Abraham, listen, you need to promise me that you're not going to lie to me like you did in last week's passage, okay? And, and, and uh, Abraham basically says, you know what, that's, that's pretty reasonable. So, okay, I will. I swear. But apparently then we learn it was Abraham who came to Abimelech, and he came to him in order to settle a dispute about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. In other words, his servants were not abiding by this arrangement with Abraham. He was supposed to dwell anywhere he wanted, dig wells where he wanted, but these servants were calling that into question, and they're trying to lay claim on his well. Now, here's the truth. This conflict over the well is not the point of this story. It's not why it's included. This is a beautiful scene, church, but the point is very subtle The conflict here is just an excuse to show us that Abraham has built wells in this region. Notice, uh, when they make an oath, that's exactly what these ewe lambs are all about. He says, these seven ewe lambs that you will take from my hand, uh, that this may be a witness for me. To what? That I dug this well. So they make an oath together. And they name this region Beersheba, which just means the land of the oath. But again, the point of the oath is to confirm that Abraham dug the wells in this region. Now, why would that matter? Why would that be important? Have we heard of any other wells in this story? Of course, yes, we have, right? Uh, The one that God showed to Hagar when he opened her eyes miraculously in the wilderness. The well that saved their lives and secured the promise that he made to her back in chapter 16. And where was that wilderness they wandered in? Where all this happened? Look with me at the end of verse 14. Abraham sends them off in the beginning of this story and it says, She departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Before we know why it was named that or where it even is or what that name means, it turns out even though Abraham did not know it, even though he sent these two off against his will with an anxious heart, worried for their future, even though he gave them water and that water he gave them ran out. It's not enough to sustain them, but God uses Abraham's well to rescue Hagar and Ishmael in the wilderness and to keep them alive. It's incredible. And church, I think we're supposed to read this and we are supposed to marvel at the fact that this God will give us life just as he said. Even when we've lost all hope that he would, even if we are just moments from death 
even for those who are cast out of his covenant family and not citizens of his nation. When this God promises to give us life, we can depend on his word. And it gets, it gets even better. Because it turns out long, long after Genesis was written, another offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, will speak with another outcast woman, this time a Samaritan, by a very similar well. In fact, we see in John 4 that the well that he was at was, uh, used to belong to Jacob, who was actually the son of Isaac, who was just born in this story today. And at first, Jesus asks her for a drink of water, and she's surprised. She's shocked that he would even talk to him, to her, because she's a Samaritan. She's been cut out from the family of God. And Jesus basically says, listen, if you knew who I was, then you would actually ask me for a drink of water, and I would have given you, he says, living water. And the woman's confused by this because he didn't even have anything to draw water with. That's, that's why he had to ask her for a drink to begin with. But then Jesus says this. He says, everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water. Welling up to eternal life. Church, Jesus is the ultimate offspring of Abraham who has come to give us the very life of God that we lost in the wilderness, and he has done that by living a perfect human life himself, meeting us in our wilderness, by dying in our place on a cross, and by rising from the dead in victory over sin and death. Why? So that anyone who believes in him from any nation, Jews, Philistines, Egyptians, and even Samaritans can drink of this living water. Kind of like Hagar and Ishmael do all the way back in Genesis 21. But the water that they drank from way back then, from this well that belonged to Abraham, that water did not satisfy their thirst forever. It helped them stay alive long enough for God to multiply them. But they eventually died. And this water turns out to be a glimpse, if you will, a foretaste of a better water that is yet to come. This living water that Jesus offers us wells up in us to eternal life. And when we drink of it, church, we will never thirst again. In the person of Jesus Christ, the everlasting God of Abraham has given us his eternal life. And he has done it just as he said he would long, long ago. But if there's anything we learn from this story, it's that it doesn't always feel like this life that he's promised us will come. Sometimes you have to wait 25 years for it. Sometimes, even though you think it's coming, you're going to find yourself wandering in a wilderness worried you might die. For us, today, we have the promise of resurrected life in Christ, but it hasn't quite come yet. And so, here are three things from Genesis 21 that we need to remember while we wait for the life that God has promised us. Three things to remember. First is this. 
it may take much longer than we'd like. It may take much longer than we like. Maybe you identify with Abraham and Sarah in this passage because you've always sort of been in close proximity with God and his people and his promise. Maybe you grew up in the church, for example. And early on, as a child, you had high hopes of what it might mean to follow Jesus. And you've been in the church following Jesus ever since, but your expectations still have not been met. If anything, over and over again, you have been discouraged. You have been disappointed as you sojourn on the way. You are still looking for that ideal, healthy church where no one will hurt you or frustrate you or annoy you. You are still waiting for a godly Christian spouse who will commit to you and join their life with you. You are still hoping that you'll find victory over that one area of sin in your life that you are still struggling with. And the longer it takes, the clearer it seems to be you may never get that Christian life as you wanted it back then. You may never find those Christian friends. You may never find that ideal church you're envisioning. Every once in a while, maybe we'll make a covenant with a king where we sojourn. Maybe he might give us permission to occupy a building in the city or something like that, and that'll be great. It'll feel like a big win. But it's still just abundantly clear that this land is not ours. And this life is not eternal. This is not the new heavens. And the new earth. This is not the heavenly resurrected life that Christ has promised. And for many of us, it may feel like we have been waiting for that life for a long, long time. So long, in fact, that some days when we hear about it even, we may be tempted to sort of chuckle to ourselves. (laughs) Yeah. Eternal life. (laughs) Intimacy with God. Sure. That sounds great. Look, at this point, I'd settle for a job I actually enjoy. Or a marriage that's not riddled with conflict. Or more time with my grandkids. That sounds great right about now. But I am sick of sojourning. I want the life that God has promised me in the land that he has promised it. And I am tired of waiting. Church, the truth is we may not have it now. It may even seem like it will never come. But what we do have is his word. What we do have is is this promise, and that is more than enough to sustain us, especially when we're talking about a God with a track record like this. Let's learn, church, from the story of Abraham and Sarah, and let's keep waiting for the life that God has promised us, because someday, probably not as soon as we'd like, but someday we will get it, just as he said. Next As we wait for the life God has promised, we also have to remember, number two, it may be more painful than we'd prefer. It may take longer than we'd like, may be more painful than we'd prefer. I want you to notice there's a lot of pain in this passage. There is a lot of pain and heartache. Abraham has to part ways with his son and the mother of his child for the sake of this promise. Hagar and Ishmael were cast out from their family and sent off into the wilderness A mother had to watch as her son suffered and nearly died. My goodness. Following Jesus may be far more painful than we'd prefer. 
At times, it may be even very displeasing to us. It could be you might meet a great, very kind person you feel very compatible with, but you should not marry them because they don't know or worship Christ. They don't care about any of this. And walking away from that relationship would be incredibly painful. It could be that you find a great career opportunity that you should not pursue because the people you'd be in, in investing in and the work even involved would just stifle your spiritual life and growth. It would consume you. And walking away from that opportunity may feel very displeasing, maybe even very costly. It could be that our kids won't grow up to follow Jesus. It, it could be that our close friends reject us because we do. It could be that some people profess faith in Christ, they join our church, and then after years and years of following Jesus with us, they just leave without a good explanation, maybe even walk away from the faith. And, and we may want nothing more than just to track them down, to drag them back, and to encourage them to stay the course, but God may not give us that opportunity. The best we might do is just to send them off with a skin of water. It can be painful to have our hopes and dreams dashed. It can be painful to let go of opportunities that seem promising. It can be painful to watch as people we love wander off into a spiritual wilderness. But church, this God meets broken people in the wilderness. And he offers them wells of living water. So when we're feeling the pain, when we're tempted to give up on the hope of eternal life, we need to remember that this God will give life to his people just as he said. It may take longer than we'd like. It may be more painful than we'd prefer, but we can rest on the promise of his word, even when we experience incredible pain and suffering. Before we move on here, just, just one more point on this. Uh, maybe in this passage, you actually identify most of all with Hagar and Ishmael. When you think of the Christian life or you think of the fellowship of a local church, for instance, maybe pain is the only thing that comes to mind for you because you have always felt cast out and cut off from God's people. You have never felt at home in God's family and you have no hope that you ever would. Maybe just the thought of, of walking into church this morning even created tons of anxiety in you. You can't believe that you're here <laughs> Today, Well, I hope these words from our passage will stick out to you most of all today. Fear not. Fear not. Behold this Christ who gives us living water that wells up to eternal life, even for the outcasts, even for those who are far off. This is a church with a place for you, friends. There is a place for you in this family because of Christ. As painful as this life may be for all of us, we can be sure of this, that no one will experience more pain and suffering for the sake of this promise than God's own son. He had to enter this story himself as a son of Abraham himself who had to wait and suffer and to trust in the promise of eternal life, and he did. This son has felt your pain this son has died your death, and this son offers you eternal life. And so it may take longer than we'd like. It may be more painful than we prefer. But because of Christ, church, we can be sure, number three, we will get the life that God has promised. 
just as he said. His word can be trusted. Even when we're tempted to laugh it off because it seems impossible. Uh, Even when we feel cast off and far from him as if all hope is lost. Even then we can be certain that whatever he has promised us will be ours. In his timing, sure. And in his peculiar, unpredictable, often painful ways, yes. But we will get the life he's promised. Just as he said long, long ago. And when we get it, church, when we drink of his living water, we will never thirst again. In fact, at the very, very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, the author, John, sees a vision of the life to come. And in it, he sees a new heaven, and he sees a new earth, and he sees a great heavenly city coming down from heaven with a great throne in the midst of it. And then here's what we read next in Revelation 21. It says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold... I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This God is speaking again, and he has something to say. We better listen. And he says to me, John says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end. And listen very carefully. To the thirsty, he says, I will give from the spring of the water of life. Without payment. Now just imagine Ishmael hearing this last part. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. Church, if we want to conquer, if we want this heritage, if we want to drink from the spring of life without payment... And let's listen when this God speaks. And let's trust that whatever he says will happen just as he says it will happen. Let's pray. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. We have no hope of eternal spiritual life. You are the source of our life. In our sin, we've turned from you. We've run from you. We cut ourselves off from the source. But we praise you that you've sent us Christ. And we thank you that in him we have the promise of eternal life. Help us to live with this truth in mind. Give us great confidence and trust that you will be faithful to your word. And help it guide us more than anything else, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.